0: Omar Tom, I have never called you that in my life. But welcome to The Forever Student.
1: Yeah, dude, I'm excited, man.
0: This has been a long time in the making.
1: Yeah. You know, what's funny, like, I'm more excited about doing this than when we first like ideated the show. Which was, um,
0: we're now 50 something episodes in. Yeah. And uh, I remember sitting in your old office Thinking about what should the name be, let's yeah. create like the flow of the episodes, let's see what it can all come together like, and like here yeah. we are, after really? all this time.
1: It's amazing. I how are, love it. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Beautiful Friday, man. It's a beautiful day. Got up early, got my workout in, ran some like business work errands, and we're here now, so.
0: We're here now. Yes, sir. We're here now. We're going to dive into a bunch of different topics. We're going to get nice and personal with OT today. That's um great. I feel like your story is one that needs to be highlighted. We were just talking about, you've done this in Arabic before. Yeah. And I think it's time to do it in English.
1: 2000%.
0: 2000%. So excited. Let's start from, let's just jump right in. Let's do it. Let's talk about, let's talk about the kidney transplant. Let's talk about your health journey. Sure. When did that start? How did that start? How did that progress?
1: So that kicked off, I mean, at birth. So that's what we know, at least scientifically, is that I had just an anomaly that I was born with. But it's an interesting one because it happens to a lot of babies, which is called a reflux. A reflux, basically, and I'm going to get a bit graphic, but scientifically speaking, um, is that your, your kidneys are connected to your bladder, right? And your bladder is almost like a muscle. When you urinate, what happens is that the connections to the kidney closes. And the bottom one opens so you can urinate, right? And you can flush it out your system. So reflux is when these muscles don't close or these connections don't close well. I don't think it's a muscle, but I assume it is. Um, But anyway, some of the urine shoots back, right? That's called a reflux. Now, it happens to a lot of babies. Your body's still developing itself, which is normal. But then at some point it regulates and your cells are... Regenerating at a faster, at a healthier rate than an adult. Right, you're still in those early, early years. So, unfortunately for me, what ended up happening was that the reflux resulted in something called a dysplasia, which is that the kidney gets weakened by the scarring and the beat up it took. That it gets smaller and it gets weaker, but starts to impact the healthy kidney. Is okay. it something that you feel like this no. process? No. So do you here's the funny thing. Um, what a lot of people don't know about kidney issues in general. You do not feel it until it's too late. Mm. Across the board, right? If it's a kidney stone, once it reaches the connection to the bladder is when it starts hurting. While it's floating in your kidney, you actually don't feel it as much.
0: And how do you like, how would you understand if something is happening with your kidneys or not?
1: How my parents um, noticed it was that there's a certain age when babies stop urinating and you start going through potty training, right? You go through this journey, right? In my case, that journey came later. But also, despite all the training, I'll still wet my pants. i still wet my bed. And all the way to, like, KG and getting into, like, into school, I still had those issues. Thankfully, they noticed it much earlier. They noticed it when I was two. I think my mom's background as a a pharmacist, her eldest brother being a doctor, uh, a pediatrician. So that kind of, I think, there's a medical understanding. So she's like, okay, something's off. We went to her brother um, who was... He was heading the pediatrician here back in, since early 80s in Fujera. So he had well, the knowledge, which was amazing. And he had the expertise, he had the facilities. So that helped a lot. And it was just started from there with a bunch of tests, And he's like, okay, um, it seems like the bladder might be still weak and maybe there's an issue there, but it seems like it's a kidney thing. Um, You got to go to this gentleman, Dr. Parrott in London. And that began this journey of my life. And I mean, shout out to my parents for this because I have seen more doctors than I can count from all walks of life because it began with this Dr. Pratt. Supposedly, he is the OG. He's the guy, right? And, and know, how
0: old were you when you went to see him?
1: Probably around four. I okay. remember I remember distinctly. But also, that it wasn't one time. Like, I remember many summers We're back in London, we're constantly going to see this guy. And I remember him. Like, I can see him, you know? Like, this old old school british in the sense of like the tweed jacket gray hair the thick glasses the bow tie like that stereotype of like an og older british man um and i remember his office was just like it wasn't clinical it was you know brown wood bookshelves upon and many many medical books behind him like it was one of these like old school
0: classy doctor things.
1: exactly like that that was that you know and his assessments after doing the tests was that, okay, um, he, this is what happened to his kidneys and this is the impact it has on his bladder. Uh, we need to do more tests, but he will, his kidneys will fail by 13. He will be on uh, dialysis. He will not get transplanted till 18. That is, so it is going to impact his height. It's going to impact his growth, nutrition, all these other issues. So he's going to be malnutrition. He's, gonna be, um, he's not going to develop regularly. And obviously that scared my parents and hence that's why this journey of seeing many doctors like a second opinion Mm -hmm. wasn't enough. We were going to start pursuing every option. (laughs) Like I remember moments where I sat with like sheikhs and like their Quran sessions and like, you know, sitting in these like strange circles. Um, One of the funniest ones, the most memorable to me, I was probably like 13, 14 and it it gets exhausting. Like as a kid, every summer, your vacation is dependent about possibly seeing a doctor somewhere, right? Um, yeah, or, I was
0: going to ask you, like, how did that impact your both your your childhood as, as you know, obviously wanting to be a regular kid? And then secondly, like, your mental health? Yeah, yeah,
1: so as a kid, I think, in my mind, I thought I was normal. But I think once you're in school, you start to understand the issues. Because right? that's a
0: comparison thing, right?
1: Exactly, right? Now it's comparative. Why am I the one with extra shorts and extra pair of pants to school every day? Yeah. You know, like, little things like that. But also… The bullying, the taunting, kids are, I mean, I don't, do we cuss on this show? A little bit. Okay, cool, yeah, I mean, kids are assholes, especially at these early ages. So, it became that kind of violent and a lot of, you know, uh, nonsense and bullying. So, and I remember, my dad is old school, so I went back, like, crying, this little kid, like, first grade, and he was like, if... He talks to you. Talk back. You can't talk back. You hit him. And if he hits you back and he beats you up, you grab a rock and you pop his head. <laughs> like my dad went to this like very old school way of like dealing with bullies, you know? And did you take that advice? Yo, of course. I was impressionable. Yeah. Yo, round one, day one, that kid came, was talking smack. I did not go through the steps. It was the rock instantly. Uh, <laughs> and that gave you this moment. I'm like, oh, there's a sense of power dynamic here. Fighting with your younger siblings at home is different. I'm the eldest. So that's, that's different. Fighting when, with strangers, when you're discovering people that are stronger than you, is a whole other ballgame. Mm. Like, I remember sixth grade, this guy was talking a lot of nonsense. I pushed him and he punched me. That was the first time I got punched square in the eye. Like, you know, I was like, whoa. It's a shock. Like, completely. And, you know, you're crying, gets messy. I remember I waited for him to just not notice. He was in a football game. I went and grabbed the rock back of the head so i was i was a menace as a result of that and i think that's the anger and the frustration of just dealing with all the stuff right kind of expressing itself in, a, in an unusual way but at the time i had no idea what is wrong with me i just knew something is wrong right but did you
0: understand like kind of the no i suppose the science behind it or no. what was being explained to you no
1: or? no i didn't none i understood all, all of this much later when we come to the transplant stuff okay. itself um so that so that, that was the journey as, as a kid for many years. Um, I've seen therapists, uh, psychiatrists, all of it. And they're like, "Yeah, this kid's fine. So it wasn't it was like because there's a concern. Oh, maybe it's terrified. Something is wrong. That are, you know, the usual things you'd assume why a kid is wetting the bed. Like it's not a physical thing right. as well. Um, and yeah, and like that, that the most memorable experience was that the, the, my aunt wanted to do good. My parents were not around. We were in Sudan and she's like, I'm going to take it to a sheikh. You're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. i like all right cool we go she takes me and by um, then I'm already fresh I'm already done I've seen too many I've dealt with too many I'm like I can't do another doctor of any kind um so we go to this thing and yo it was the strangest place like we go into this person's house she stays outside they take some guy takes me inside and it's dark like all the windows have like red curtains covering them this whole place is red dude sitting at the other end and like a a or like a thobe to give it context. And it's just, you know, he has a prayer beads that he's going through and like he's mumbling something to himself and there's like incense burning. And it's just a very strange, it, the energy in the space was weird. Till date, I'll never forget that. And they may have me sit on the floor in the middle of the room, not in a seat. And I had to like sit with my legs straight in front of me, right? And I had to keep my back upright. And then he begins reciting Quran and saying different things. And any adult today, if you make them sit in that position for long, their back is going to hurt. Their muscles are going to weaken. They're going to stoop. Not only did that happen to me as a 12-year-old, but like, there's a point where I fell asleep. Like, it was just, <laughs> bruh, it like, took too long. Now, How long were you there for? I don't even remember. Like, it just, I remember I fell asleep and I woke up and the guy's still going. And at the end, he's like, mm, you know, there's hasad, there's this, there's that. Because the way your back slouched and the way you got tired and fell asleep, I'm like, Really? Yeah, I looked at my head, I'm like, bring Bruh.
0: any 12 year old in here and see what happens.
1: I was like, that instance has been burning too hot. Whatever is in there, this dude got it, got to his head. <laughs> he's high. Like, it just, the, the rationale was not there. And right. I, was like, I was like, I'm done. This is stupid. I'm leaving. And I remember I was so mad about it. But um. so, anyway, so fast forward, I've done that for so long. Eventually, came across this lovely guy, Dr. Adil. Um, he's based in Dubai, incredible, incredible nephrologist. Anybody has any kidney issues, I'll always recommend him. And he took me on, this was like early, late 90s, early 2000s. And we kind of became this every three to six months or so, if my memory serves me right, we'd go see him in his clinic. Very methodical. And he confirmed Dr. Parrot was right. This is an issue, but the bladder is not an issue at all. It's fine. It was just kidneys. Um, and that was a rough test to f- discover that. Uh, we were in Jordan. We went to Amman and we were, I was 15. My uncle my dad's cousin had, uh, was having an open heart surgery and apparently doctors there were good, you know, medical tourism. So dude and the um, surgery went well, everything is fine. But obviously since we're there, my parents like, hey, let's see if there's a nephrologist. It seems like doctors in Jordan are great. And they decided to do a, um, they wanted to take a look at my bladder. Um, the way to do that, which is, this is going to get pretty graphic, it might make some people uncomfortable, but um, catheter goes through the penis all the way to your bladder. Um, the right way to do that is there's a gel that gets injected first that kind of numbs everything. You shouldn't feel a thing. I got no gel. And that was a very painful experience. That whole thing was just tra- traumatizing to, other, to many levels. And when it was coming out, it got bent a little bit. So, like, it scratched a bit, apparently, on the inside. So then, for the next 24 hours, I could not urinate. As soon as I tried, everything burns, everything hurts. Could not. What's the reason that they didn't put the job? Um, just ignorance. Okay. Or from somebody not doing their job. So yeah. Whatever that was. Sorry, we don't have it today. You, you know, exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, we're out of stock, but hey, we could keep going. Yeah, yeah, right. about it. Like, it takes two weeks for it to get here. You know? Yeah. yeah. And my parents, I remember, tried everything to kind of help at the time. Like... Yeah, you know, we even you know when you're a kid, like they fill up a bathtub and shit, they even fill they're like, chill, enjoy yourself. I'm like, no, it's good in. Eventually rushed to the emergency, got the gel, got painkillers, got a bunch of stuff, and it was sorted out. But like those 24 hours were excruciating. Um so Dr. Adel came in, he fixed everything, He's like, okay, these are the issues. He saw the results from Jordan's like, I right, we're gonna sort this shit out. We're gonna fix this. And he's been amazing. Like he's just been consistent. But now you're in your teens and you're getting into college type age age group where the rebellion kicks into high gear. The bullying went from being because of that. I had better control of my bladder. Things were better as a teenager. But now it's the black issue. It's all these different things. Yeah, that's what that So that became so that the violence hasn't stopped. I just got better at it, right? Um, and and in interest interesting enough, like with difficult teachers in school i would shine in classes like a's doing great and if it's a boring class and i'm not interested yo class clown so it was like either front of the class or at the back like i I was never like a a middle you know b student it was either that or like a c a or c's only you know um so it just always depended on my teachers which now i learned like a lot about which i can get to at another time but so it's either that and then getting to fights outside of school, and that leading to like this whole thing of like reading Malcolm X's books, reading Martin Luther King's, reading Nelson Mandela. And then there was a point where I became like a young, like, oh, like, mind you, this was in the UAE, <laughs> but I became like a, what what do you call him? Like a, a Black Panther rebel, like grew an Afro and then with a hip hop influence, like all these things. How old of, were
0: you when you were reading those books? Like, and
1: Oh, like 15. Okay. 16. Yeah. Like it was in high school.
0: Yeah. Going into high school.
1: Because the rationale was that, Playing basketball, playing football, seeing other kids in school, there's the, the black people in media were coveted. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was the coolest thing anybody's ever seen, right? Um, the, you know, the Michael Jordans, Jacoby Bryants, the actors, the musicians, whatever it is, like black celebrities were coveted, right? Kids want to emulate them. They want to be like them. But then you were a different brand of black, if you will. Meaning? Meaning I was getting bullied um, racially. Whereas, you know, a kid trying to take a three-point shot, he'd be like, Jordan, right? Like, what? (laughs) So, like, that's a cool black that we want to, that everybody, all the kids in school want to be like, but you're not, you're, you know? So, that caused a lot of tensions and that resulted in fights. So, but also...
0: But did that result also in you then wanting to play sports (laughs) and wanting to... Correct. So...
1: I had a lot of energy and my, and I'm grateful for the competitive nature I had with my brother as well. We would like, how many sport medals can we get, you right. know, from, and like, I played cricket. I was the only non-South Asian on the cricket team. Like, I, you know, we ran cross country, swim team, basketball, football, softball, like whatever sport that was available, we're in.
0: And did your health condition impact like athletic performance at all? Or was that minimal?
1: It did. Um, I think it did in the sense of and I've only noticed like I can looking back in hindsight, I can say that it did because I was always like first place in a sport was really far off for me. I could seconds and thirds maybe or even less, but first place like I'd fight for that. That was very difficult despite making the teams. I made every team, every sport, but that thing was missing. And also, I think just the the sense of career in sport wasn't it's was not a thing here for us you know at least back then it was like a wishful thinking maybe one day but you know and then Antoine one comes out and now you're like in a whole different stratosphere you're like oh that is the coolest thing i've seen i want to be like those guys so now you're practicing like trick shots and then you're out in the parks playing with kids in the parks and uh for those that grew up in the uae they'd remember uh, adidas streetball back in the day which was like the basketball tournament that everybody wanted to be a part of and it was like the social gathering because it's basketball, it's music, it's a party, it's a barbecue. Like it was this whole huge experience, you know, dunk contest, like the whole thing. So that was a huge hit. We'd like, you know, every year we're waiting for this thing, right? Um, So that, that was part of the competitiveness that became exciting for me. And I learned that, oh, the basketball guys are kind of like the hip hop guys. Now you're getting into your Iversons, the Tracy McGrady's time and all these guys. And you know, there's this connection. I'm like, oh, because I'm reading these books, but then this is like the modern day version through rap music and hip hop culture. I started emulating a lot of that in the way I dress, the way I talk, the way I sound, the way I carried myself. Do
0: you you feel it was authentic to you? Like, or do you feel like you were like... Oh,
1: I wanted to be everything about it. So at the time, there's an awkward phase where it's stupidly inauthentic, right? Where you're just like imitating without understanding. Yeah. Whatsoever. Um, But then you kind of start to like read about it more. You'd see it. My cousins would visit, they'd have like, they bring like a source magazine or they bring, you know, something with them, like, oh, that, this, and, you know, and you read through it. That kind of gave me a lot of a, a deeper understanding of things. And granted, it wasn't my culture, right? I didn't grow up with it. But it's the beautiful thing about hip hop culture and through its elements is that suddenly you feel like through this thing, I have a voice. Yeah. That was it. Suddenly now, I was like, if I become f- part of this thing, I have a voice that I'd never had before. But also, it was a safe home for minorities of any capacity. You see it, the way it reverberates through music. Today, you'll find a Palestinian and Israeli kid, one produced the track, the other rapped on it, right? Despite all the issues, that's their message of peace, right? So you'd see different parts of the world, different pieces using this. And I think
0: what it also shows you is um, it shows you potential. Right, like, because I think, like, within the UAE, you might limit yourself based yeah. on what you see around you. You're like, there's not much for me to strive for, right. like me being OT. Um, but then when you see what's happening outside, people that look like you yes, a little bit more, people that exactly. speak to you, like what you, you relate see your to, your likeness, right? You see, you your see likeness. what
1: you could be being married back, exactly. right? And it sends this new sense of hope, like, oh, that's where it's at, right? And that becomes the coolest thing that you're excited about. And it did. It served me really, really well. And I became obsessed. And I got into your KRS-1s and the history of it. And like when I went to New York, I made it a point to go down to the South Bronx. Like it was like going to a mecca. Like it became an obsession in that sense. i like, I took all of it in. <laughs> um, so now I get into college university and I actually wanted to be an aerospace engineer simply because my dad was in a shipping and cargo business. My uncle at some point in the eighties was the CEO for a brief period of the Sudanese airways. I've got a cousin that's a pilot. So I just cool influences around him. Like this is dope. And my dad has this really cool thing where it's like, and I was saying it the other day, I'm like, he might struggle with a smartphone, like no idea what's going on. Right. And I get it, but he can see a plane flying above his head and he could tell you exactly what model that plane is. Like he knows his business. So it, um, so I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Houston and this whole thing. Right. And it became a serious family conversation. And there was this plan. And then my mom started worrying. She was like, look, uh, your health does that. You're always getting into trouble. At the time, I picked up smoking. I was hanging around with the wrong crowd. And she's like, I'm scared for your health. She's like, if anything happens and you're you're FAR, we can to get a visa to come to you in itself is a hassle. So she's like, maybe just stick around for a little bit and then you can go. Like, all right, fine. So, it took a lot of convincing. It wasn't a quick decision, but eventually I caved. So, I joined um, AUD, just like whatever management information systems that eventually switched to marketing. And sophomore year, summer vacation is when I had my surgery. So, that was 20, May 24, 2010. So, like that became the surgery date we agreed to. Luckily, as I've been dealing with Dr. Adel, Sheikh Khalifa Medical City. Hospital in Abu Dhabi started a transplant program. They brought these like superstar uh, surgeons and doctors and pharmaceutical teams and like a nephrology team. Like they were building what was was supposed to be like a beacon for any transplant issues.
0: Why did you need to wait until that age?
1: Oh, the good news here. Okay. Yes. Great question. I skipped over that. Um, The reason why I had to wait to 18 was because at the time you could not transplant a child. Right. And this was in the early nineties. That was Dr. Parrott's conversation with us. But with medicine and with laws changing and the improvements and the technology in that aspect, it became possible to transplant young kids. Right. But good news for me, because of Dr. Adil and because of the precautions and the medications and the different things he's done, I made it to 21. Got it. Without needing it at all. Got it. Right. And it was strange too, because like my levels were like scary. But he's like, You're somehow operating which is but he's like the clock is ticking you know um it's either going to be a transplant or it's going to be a dialysis case so you figure it figure it out so thankfully Khalifa medical city they introduced this thing so the program was for free too wow so you just got to get registered you got to be a resident and there's certain you know precautions in regards to law like person has to be a family a direct family member um you got to go through this all these medical tests but also there's psychological evaluation so there's a very you know this Rigid. Correct. And it was clear and that was the way they managed to kick off this program, right? And their transplant team is spectacular. There's um, a lady, her, she was heading the department, her name is Roberta and they're like, basically they're nur- nurses but like with certain masters in mm-hmm. a specific field, just like how a doctor can go have a, become you know, an a, an expert in something. So they're like the superstar nurse team for this thing. And she was older older uh, Canadian lady and took No, she took no bullshit from anybody. It didn't matter hospital administration. It didn't matter if it was the doctors, the staff, the patients or the patient's relatives. None. She was scary, ruthless, big woman. She walks down these halls. People see her coming. They move like she dominated that hospital. And she's like, my priority are my patients and nothing else. And she was amazing, but also harsh with patients. So at first I didn't like her. But then we had this beautiful relationship because she was like, you're never going to be normal. Understand this today, easier to accept later. Your life is going to be dependent on a set number of medication from now till however long the kidney could last you, right? Um, So you're always going to be on this thing. Um, You're all these different things had to change, different foods, different systems. And, you know, and oh, after your surgery, because you're immunosuppressed, you got to be more careful than a normal person. You got to drink an obscene amount of water, like all these things. And like she would like bombard you with all this information that is not only overwhelming but all you think is like oh my life is over as I know it mm, especially because you're young and 21 year old do you think you're invincible yeah 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 like bro I was playing varsity at the university I was doing all these different things I had like I started a dance crew like yo you think you are invincible and especially when you stay I was working at radio uh, I mean sorry radio came in later uh, that's the wrong timeline uh, but the party scene at night times, right? With the fake IDs. Like, you know, you'd party all night, make it back to the dorms at like 4 a.m., and then you're in class at 8, right? Like, but you could do that at that age, right? So you thought you had it all figured out and you had no idea what's going on and not what was about to happen as well. So so now the panic and this dread and the sense of overwhelm and the fear of it. And every time I'd see her, she'd remind me of certain things or certain changes. Here, read this brochure, read this leaflet, read this. I'm going to send you some links. They'll email me some links. And the first su- we get into the first surgery. And-, and what
0: and what was the first surgery? Like, what was the process of like? So
1: um, we go through these tests, a lot of blood tests to make sure you're a match. They test the family and turns out we're all the same blood type. So that was like in and of itself is a lucky you win, right? My dad decides he wants to be the donor and then this argument ensues between my dad and mom and who's going to be the one. And my dad says, you know what, I've just been a finance provider and not like a very present father in that aspect, so I have to do it. So I think there's some guilt there that my dad was trying to manage as well. Um, And then we see the therapist. Uh, She sees us together, then she talks to us individually and then they eventually set a date. During that time, they keep getting you tested to make sure you're good and you're ready. You sign all the documents of, you know, this you know you might not waivers, make it so uh, all the waivers you got to go through all that process and then family came that wanted to donate and my dad lost his mind he was like absolutely not this is not happening and people started flying in, which i wasn't expecting like I, uh, I just expected like flying in for support yeah from all parts of the world right uh, and those that lived here people were getting booked in hotel rooms next to the hospital like it And
0: this was all family.
1: Yeah. Mostly. Mostly family, but a lot of my dad's friends and peers and people have a lot of respect for him. Like my my parents' social circle is massive. Mm. Family or otherwise, huge social circle. Um, But I'm like, uh, cool, like does everybody have to be here? You know, kind of thing. But I didn't care too much. The day of the surgery, um, I go in for my tests. So they prep you and they do a bunch of tests like just before. And... There's this process that they have to do, which is they intru- they introduce a mainline IV, which is either right on your main uh, it's on your neck, so it's the the vein that connects to your brain, which is actually one of the thickest like um, uh, veins that you have or um, that's one option and then I believe there is another option where they put it um, inside your arm, but that's called the fistula so they cut your arm open right by the wrist area and then right before the elbow on the on the inside and a fistula is this pipe that they'll put in yeah. that gets stitched in under your skin and they connect to that right because then that kind of gets introduced to your bloodstream so I'm like no fistulas I'll take the shit in the neck any day <laughs> because now this is the problem I can't play basketball I can't exercise, all these issues, right? You're like, and it's so silly, but that's where your mind goes because you want normalcy. So I'm like, that's what I was like fighting for. And today I'm very glad I did. Um, so like, I'll take the neck one. So I, I got like still scars in of it, but they, they take my dad in first and he's supposed to have a surgery a few hours before mine. So, while, so they'll take him in at like 4 or 5 a.m. They'll take him into the uh, OR prep room. They'll prep him. You know, put him to sleep and then drag him inside. Um, while they're operating on him, they start bringing me into prep because you got a window, right? So you want to make sure you, take, you have a clean surgery, take the kidney out, put it on ice, bring in the second body. Yeah, that needs to be up.
0: like a seamless sort of... Exactly. Yeah. So there's a
1: very clear pipeline on how they do that. So as soon as he's done, as he's getting ushered out, I'm getting ushered in by the other door. By then, I'm out. Like I'm I'm knocked out, dead right. asleep. And I remember, I even asked. I'm like, "Can I get a video of my surgery?" I'm like, I didn't know. Like, I I, t- I would watch them on YouTube. It's the funniest thing. I'm like, "What is happening to me in that room?" And it's just interesting, right? And like, you, I'm watching like surgery theater operation rooms, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" So I wanted to see my own, but I didn't get to. I'm still I'm still fighting that fight. I'm still <laughs> hoping I can get that, like, because I believe they film them, you know. So, anyways, wake up in the ICU, and the way this works is that you're going to be. In the hospital for about five to seven days. The first two to three days, you're in the ICU. Then they take you out to the ward. After a few days, you're good. You can leave.
0: Both of you guys or just you? Dad is shorter. Because he just got it removed. So, so exactly. it's different.
1: And for a lot of people, they might mistake this. Um, your kidneys are actually like beneath your ribs on your back, right? Um, they're not on the front. So when you get transplanted, the new kidney is put at, on, the, on your lower abdomen. There is a little space somehow in your lower abdomen that it fits perfectly in. So, my dad's surgery was quick and easy because they did the to uh, get they got the little robots and it, they look like cigarette burns. It's that tiny. There's like three of them. One is for the um, the camera, and the other two are for like the little sticks, right? The hands. It goes in, clips the kidney, and kind of pulls it out. And I'm, and he was like, the doctor was explaining it. It's like your skin stretches, so it just gets bloop, pulled out of that little hole. And
0: <laughs> with you, do they remove?
1: With me, they got to cut me open. They don't remove the old ones. And this uh-huh. is the interesting thing. The old ones are kept in because they are, unless it's going to damage the new one. Okay. Right? So they'll take it out. For example, God forbid, if we take like an American pop culture reference, if you get shot or you get punched in your kidney in a boxing match and now it starts bleeding, they will take it out. But the interesting thing is that you will live a regular, normal life with one kidney. No problem. My dad is healthier today than before the surgery. To give it context, he actually exercises. He walks. He's doing a lot, and he looks better than he did before. You know, and we're talking about 2010. We're in 2023. So, um, so they actually do fine. But in my case, if I had a certain, there are other types of diseases that would actually impact a new kidney, right? Um, thankfully, that's not what I had.
0: So you just kept them and so I get and, to keep, yeah and added
1: yeah you add a you add a new one. Um, so after. Th- Three, after 24 hours, they take my dad out of the ICU to the ward. After 48 hours to 72 hours, if he's fine, they just let him out. I was, I remember waking up in the ICU and people are at a window. So I'm not allowed any visitors. I am highly immunosuppressed. There is zero immune system, highly medicated. And I get this sort of like, like this little click button that, you know, like in the movies, like, like the low bomb click buttons. So it looks like that. But, um, it was like morphine. So that's connected to the systems and it had a clock on it, which is like, damn, they're smart. Um, you cannot click it more than 45 minutes windows. So to manage your pain, you have a 45 minute window only. The thing that that puts you back to sleep or it gets you very drowsy. So like all my memories of that time are like in and out. Not a full block, but I remember seeing people at the window kind of waving, checking in on me. And then um, there was... Um, the nurses, I was only allowed liquids and I had like these, um, you know, when you go to the cryolabs and you can cover your legs with uh, the, with yeah. what do they call it? They're almost like the, the blood pressure um, measuring thing, right? And it's just to cool your legs. So I had something like that, but it would just pulsate because what will happen, because I can't move if what will end up happening is muscle atrophy.
0: So blood flow.
1: Correct. So to manage blood flow and avoid muscle atrophy in your legs, this thing just keeps pumping. Right. And also, you don't want to have any blood clots where the, in the surgery area as well. So you got to keep that flow running. So that's what it does. Um, and I was only allowed liquids. So, you know, you're kind of in that state. Day they one, they'll try to walk you, try to get you to stand, uh, they try to get you to stand up and sit up and uh, sit up in the chair instead of staying in bed um, to kind of move things around. Once you kind of go through that, see what the pain level is. And they're like, OK, I'll sit you back down. Um, And then they did that a few times. So I had an extra day in the ICU um, because I I struggled to walk. Every Walking was incredibly painful. Um, And then back in the ward, things were getting better. And now they come in and they introduce you to their medication. These pharmacists would come in. They're like, okay, so you just had a transplant. Roberta definitely spoke to you about it, which she did. She gives you like... um, You know, it almost looks like a menu and it shows pictures of every medication in existence, right? And it tells you what it does and how to navigate it. So at the beginning, it's a huge bag of medication. I'm on a lot of meds and there's different types of immunosuppressants. But also now you're on anti-inflammatory. You're also on antifungal. You're also on um, what's called antibacterial, antiviral. You're also on magnesium and other supplements because you're highly immunosuppressed, right? Any of those things could happen at any given point. And I was always told, like, as soon as you get a fever, you rush to the hospital. It's either, an, um, it's either a rejection or it's a, uh, an infection. One or the other, you rush back either way. So we were like high alert at all times. And that's basically what they put you on. So they introduce you, they teach you all about them. So now you got to memorize this thing, right? And, then you, they get, and back then they were amazing. They give you this sheet of paper where it showed you at The different times of the day and what medication you're supposed to take. So they baby spoon feed you the information, which is what you need. Because it is a lot and mm. it is overwhelming. And Roberta once told me, she's like, you got to take them on time, but you got to be so careful. Like we had a um, a patient that came in with, um, what was it? I oh. think you get from Chickens. Uh, if he ate like raw chicken, oh, uh, salmonella. Uh, salmonella, yeah. the, He was barred with salmonella and he hasn't eaten chicken. But you know why? Because he lives in a farm with chickens and he handled the chicken, yeah, yeah, did a yeah, wash yeah. his hands, ate later, came back with some She's like, you better be careful. You better wash your hands every time. Da-da. Like, she's, like She's scary, right? And I realized, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, there's all of this thing. So all this information. So I took all that. And then the plan in, for the first few months is the first month, you got to come in three times a week right they adjust your medication they level it out because they're like it's more art than science unfortunately because every dna is different everybody's different everything responds subjective. to medication differently a lot of it is super subjective so they kind of do the stance and then after that you're, you come back twice a week then after that, it's once a week and then it becomes once a month then once every three months if everything is normal and you're one of the lucky ones that had a perfectly smooth everything it's once every six months, so you can live a normal life. And the only thing I was told I'm not allowed to have is grapefruit, because apparently grapefruit in specific has a chemical that counteracts some of the medications. So till the, today, since then I have not had a grapefruit. <laughs> Thirteen years no grapefruit, right? Um, but anyway, so I'm like all right, cool, figured all this out. So now what we do is that we stay in a hotel close to the hospital, because I'm there three times a week, and I think just being my curious nerdy self, even in university, I start researching this thing, right? I look at the different medication. I look at people living lives. What is happening? What are the, and I said, and I've seen the worst case scenarios. I've seen great case scenarios, but it was very depressing. Like everything about it was depressing. And today I understand I was dealing with depression too. But back then I did not, I did not know what that meant. We used to express it for sadness. Like it was just no understanding of the vernacular. So kind of went through that for the first i think by like week six or seven what ends up happening and the reason why the first three months are critical is the amount the the immunosuppressants that they gave you in surgery over time they start to be uh leave your body right um and eventually your body starts picking up the reliability on the pills and the pills have a what you call a half-life so you take certain medication every 12 hours so You go through that. And here's the scary thing for me. I went from being like this jock athletic kid to very, very skinny. But it's such a slow transition that I didn't even notice how bad it got until Mm. I saw pictures of what I looked like before and after surgery. I had no idea. My body was, it's almost gray. Right. Like my body was just poisoning itself because the kidneys are not performing. Plus the bad habits of the smoking and everything was just bad. Right. So and my body was just dying from the inside. But I couldn't tell because it was a very, very slow process. Till now, my kidney does not hurt. Right. So you don't feel it. That's what I'm saying. Like It's one of those things you just the tests will show you. So anyway, after surgery, because of the medication, I'm on a very high dose of cortisone. Cortisone is usually given to people to regulate, which in this case is the same, but it's a hormonal medication. So it messes with your levels. At first during surgery, I was at like 500 milligrams, which is unreal. And then after that, I would they put me on 30 and it gets cut down over time. Eventually you're supposed to be taken off it, but you cannot kind of skip. You got to get... What's the down. reason you got it? Uh, the me- cortisone? Yeah. Oh, um, because of the immunosuppressants you're on, cortisone also plays a part in a pr- as a protectionary... Um, shell, if you will, is from what I was told to the new kidney basically um, in this specific capacity. So it kind of takes the immunosuppressant elements and kind of creates this thing with it so it levels things out. Eventually it, it you're, they learn there's a development that happens of some sort so that it. you can get weaned off. The issue is because it's hormonal now, emotional levels are all over the place and the other side effect of it is that is muscle atrophy and bone density. Which uh,
0: is why like logically your you emotional state Everywhere, suffered all right? over the place. Yeah,
1: like I, jo- I was like, <laughs> I joke about it. To some of my female friends like I can kind of understand PMS because watching The Simpsons and crying to tears, like ugly cry, snot nosed, while watching The Simpsons in a hospital bed, like that to me was until today the funniest. Like but you my- were
0: you were informed. That this yeah,
1: there's there's side effects, right? It's hormonal. Like, expect. Roberta side told effects. you. She told me everything, bro. She told me one of the medication side effects is I will grow hair in places I never had hair right. before. Yo, my mind went to hair out of your ears, and she was graphic. She let me know what's gonna happen. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. I'm like, no, <laughs> right? So, like, why do I like? It's just the side effects. Some of them were really, sca- really strange. They're bizarre. So. We, so I was like, all right, cool, we'll figure this out. And now I'm dealing with all this. And now I wake up one morning with a fever. And I'm like, all right. When said, was this posted? Like, it was, six, seven weeks since. So I was okay. still in the hotel. Literally like five minute drive from the hospital. Rush to the emergency, take him in, check him out. Yep, it's a rejection, sir. Now you thought it's an infection, but no. So now I'm taken in. Um, what does that killed, mean? Meaning my body's fighting and killing the kidney. The new one. That's a rejection. Um, so your body's immune system goes like, that is strange. That should not be here. We're going to go fight. And your white blood cell count shoots up. And, you know, your body's just trying to kill this thing now. So rush me to the emergency. Instantly get into a ward. Put me up. They reinstalled the, um, the mainline IV in my neck. Same place. Same place. And it's the, the thing about it is that the reason why also the way they treat it, it can be there for months. No problem if it needs be, you know, so that's why they put it. But then I also remember I had like um, two other IVs in one hand, one IV in the other, heart monitors, like they strapped you up right away <laughs> and then get you into the ward. How common is this that it like rejects it? Um, there's always a chance of a rejection and it could be anything. It could be antibodies they did not detect. It could have been, um, you know, um you're, they, you did It could be your fault. You did not take the medication on time or you're not taking the right medication and you mix things up, right? Having a mom as a pharmacist is a blessing in that capacity. So we knew my meds were correct, yeah. right? And like, you know, or um, it could also be the medication you were given, the formula is off. As I said, it's like an art. In my case, that was the thing. And the doctor's explanation to it at the time was that, oh, um, apparently is that, Coming from the U.S., right, um, and he was a, a Pakistani American doctor, and he was like, in the U.S., traditionally we would give African Americans a lot more immu- um, immunosuppressants than normal people because they're known to have a, a higher immune system. The justification is it's the survival of the fittest, right? If you take through the history of slavery, da da, and where African Americans got to today, that gives them a a, a better, a, a stronger DNA and a stronger immune system. They're like, you're not. You're Sudanese, we didn't think you needed it, but seems like we're going to have to go through that route and figure out what's the right uh, cocktail of pills and what, type of, and what type of different immunosuppressants that will sustain you the best. And mind you, I was patient like number five when they were doing this program. So I was one of the early mm-hmm. guys. Because of Dr. Adil, he got us in early. Um, so now I'm like, all right, now I'm in the hospital. I'm going through dialysis. Uh, I went through plasma dialysis. Um, Plasma is a very interesting thing. It's like when apparently when you spin the blood really fast, I don't know if you've seen them in in like biology labs, like they put the the tubes in this thing and it spins, right? You can pull plasma out of it. And it's like a gold liquid. It's super, super strange to see in a bag, like this golden liquid. Um, So dialysis, which I've never experienced before. So now I'm having post-transplant dialysis. The strangest thing about it was that you become very cold. No matter how many blankets you have on top of you, you're cold from the inside out because the blood leaves your system and it goes into this giant machine and it's got to go through this cleaning process through the machine and then through another tube come back. So the mainline IV that I had on my neck has two tubes coming out of it. One is out and the other is in, right? And that's how this thing works. So if you have to do longer sessions, you're colder for longer. The average session is like two to three hours, if I'm not mistaken, and you go through this process. And it's a strange one because you, you, get, you get weighed on a scale. And, if you, and in my case, I couldn't move. So I would be on a wheelchair. They put me with the wheelchair. They have a calculation. They figure out how much my body weighs before and then after. Because what it's doing is that it's doing a function of a kidney. Like, take a second, let that sink in. This huge machine, the size of a refrigerator, is doing a function of these little things inside your body, right? Which is cleaning out waste of your system. And it's unfortunately... It's not waste that you could avoid. Like it's your calciums, your potassiums, your proteins—like the normal things you need to survive. But what your body does is that it balances it out. It keeps what it needs, gets rid of the excess, right? So, but
0: was the point here to like do that temporarily and then you correct? You're out of there to help
1: clean up my system because my levels started spiking as though the kidney was like not working. But how would you predict
0: that that wouldn't happen again? Like if you were to leave the hospital, like.
1: So they keep you for a set amount of time to see it level out, but then you kind of reset. If so, if you were going to the hospital once every six months, you're resetting. You're going. You're doing back. You're back to three day, uh, three times a week visitations. Got it. Because they monitor it very closely. Once they're comfortable, it's okay. It's steady. It's been steady for X amount of time. Cool. We can do go back to like once a month. You know. So that's the that's the dance of the art and science that you're always going to experience with this. So. Then I started having an allergic reaction to the plasmas because I started, I, they got to a point where I needed blood and I started having allergic reactions to the plasmas because they're natural plasma, which means it came from a blood donor, right? So now they're like, oh, that's not going to work. We're going to give you a synthetic because your body, and there was a strange allergy too. Like I popped, I had like these, like, a lot of pimples on my forehead out of nowhere these like tiny tiny ones like my and it was instant like within the three hour mark like your body changes which is something i've never seen happen before um and you lose a lot of body weight every time you go through a um a a dialysis session so you're dealing with all this. And now mom's all about like, pray, pray, pray. And I'm like, just looking for every distraction. I will watch anything. I'll play with PSP, if you remember them back in, whatever. I just, I just wanted all kinds of distractions. And just not to think about any of it. And my family would alternate. There's always, there's only allowed one person with you at any given time. So between my brothers and my parents, they, were, they are alternating. So bless them for that. And it was hard because now you're to come and sit in the room with me. You got to have a pep suit on gloves masks the whole nine yard the moment you step out you take them off and you throw them they're disposable so if you're coming back you got to go through this process all over again you got to wash your hands disinfect so i, I kind of like got a phd in in covid <laughs> by the time covid came about i was a pro at this like i knew we all knew the entire house knew what are the protocols of how to manage this thing because we've done it already um so and we've done it twice <laughs> so anyways. Um, it took quite a while while I was there. And one night this nurse comes in and it's, there's like three, four times a day they'd come check my levels, the heart monitor, check your blood pressure, all these things, and just have a quick chat with you, see how you're doing. And the male nurse came in and he was not wearing mask or his PPE. He just put on the gloves right at the door as they usually would, which is their routine practice. So whatever he had, I caught. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It could have been something on his clothes that he was just outside, whatever. It it doesn't matter. But point being is that my body cannot fight anything. So if for you, it could have been a sniffle to a regular person, or probably you might have never noticed it because your body's immune system is fighting at every given point, right? Just by sitting in a room that is not a lab clean room that has been like created in that, you're somewhere exposed to something. So... I caught whatever that was. And I remember that night my dad was with me. He's like, yo, I'm going to go pray. I'll be back in a little bit. I'm like, yo, man, do your thing. I'm watching a movie. And I start coughing and it got so bad that I would cough and shake the bed. And now I'm like clicking the nurse button, like aggressively trying to call somebody in. And I can't move, right? Like I'm strapped to all these things in the bed. Kept coughing to the point where I started coughing blood and then black. Like I don't remember my dad coming back. I don't remember anything. I just went black. Um, Just darkness. Woke up a few days later in the ICU. I went into a state of coma. My lungs crashed. They don't work. My lungs just said, your lungs. F they just stopped. And, and I remember waking up in the state of panic and like trying to figure out what's happening. And I have this oxygen mask on me, but it was like a giant industrial version than what you would see. And it gets strapped to the back of your head with Velcro. And now all what you remember is going black after being in the state of panic and coughing severely now i wake up to this and i want to rip this thing off and i get pulled, hold, held down by nurses and the doctor was there i remember my mom was there and my dad and i can barely see them but i see the figures and i know who that's, who's there and he's like look we had to make a tough decision and by then it was morning i by, when i went out it was night. Nice. so it's been a few days right and just one morning i get up and they're like so your lungs stop working and we had to make a quick decision. Save your life or save the kidney. So we stopped everything. All the, we stopped the immunosuppressants. We stopped all the medication. And we're going to focus on your lungs. This machine is breathing for you. It's pumping air in and out of your lungs. It does not, your lungs don't work. Our hope is to kickstart it like a lawnmower. If that works, congratulations, we're going to live a happy life. <laughs> right? But we don't know. He's like, the offset of that is the kidney's going to start getting beaten up really bad.
0: Right. And kidneys is like second priority at this point. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So it's like, let's hope for the best. It's just a matter of time and doing the best that we can. So now I'm immobile in this thing. So I have to get washed. I have to get, I wasn't getting fed. Everything was through tubes. Um, and this thing is just pumping air in and out. i just living off of IVs for a few days. And every day they'd come in and they were like, okay, we're going to test this out and they'll try to see if your lungs can kind of just kind of kick in on its own. Mm. Thankfully, with time, it did. And then it was one of those things. They're like, hey, how you feeling today? I'm like, I'm good. Hi. You know, like you had to, I needed that deep breath every time. So now I I had, how do I put it? Think of it like a PT in a gym or a physiotherapist for your lungs. So this guy would come visit me every day now. And he'd have this little machine with which I like, what I would assume like styrofoam little balls and tubes. And it's got a level on one side and he'll have me do these exercises. Right. Right. Um, and eventually I kept it. It's like, keep it with you. Keep doing these exercises every time you need it. And you and I had to start, they would, and through the IV, they'd give me that, um, whatever the asthmatic medication is and that little spray that people with asthma would take. Um, and then later on, I was trained on it. Okay, this is that. And I, there were like two different versions that I had to take a few times a day. So it became this like whole regimen on protecting this kidney, but uh, the lungs. Once the lungs were fine and they're like, okay, that's cool. We're going to start again. So now whatever we did is resetting from scratch. It's like, it took a lot of beating. We need to see what we could do. Eventually it worked, right? If, after a few weeks. So all in all, I think it was about a little over a month. My baby brother was born at the time, which in itself felt like a joke. Because like, uh, <laughs> my um, while I was there, my grandmother passed away, my, my dad's mom. And then... My mom was also pregnant. So now my little brother was born. We're all staying up with everybody. So like a lot has happened for the family and I'm in the hospital. So so God. much chaos, yeah. right? In the span of a little over a month. I mean, or since the surgery. So eventually that worked. They're like, all right, let's start figuring this out. So me being me with the little knowledge that I have, whenever I'd go to the hospital now for my tests, I remember the lab is downstairs and the clinic is upstairs. I would go do my tests and I would take the stairs. It's one floor. Like, I'm just like, I will not never take this elevator, you know, because I'm like, I need to figure out these lungs. I need to figure out a way to make this work. So I kind of became in this space of like, just being diligent of just walking as much as I can. Um, so that I can in some ways helped. The wh- wh- worst part of it from um, a young mind was the vanity point where now suddenly I'm severely overweight. Because of the cortisone, it retains water. I started to balloon, right? Um, I became way overweight and I've already missed the sem- that semester. I didn't go back to school. So I was like, I was dealing with too much. So with all that happening, eventually we figured out, okay, life is back to whatever this new normal is. Now with all these medications and I'm starting to figure out all this stance, depression kicked in severely. But until this point, I do not understand what it is because for the most part, you wanted just any sense of normalcy. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, uh, spring, um, the new fall, I'm going back to school. I was like, yeah, uh, spring, I missed the fall. I'm going back to school. My mom blew a casket. No, we're not. This is not happening. Dad, I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going. We're I gonna need fr- to. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a point of discussion. This is happening. And we kind of came to an agreement. They're like, well, you can't stay in the dorms anymore. You're going to stay in the house. Fine. I'll leave the dorms. So I came back with the family and we were staying in Sharjah. So I drive to like AUD every day. <laughs> and that kind of became the new set agreement like all right fine and we kind of worked with this and i would go to school but i would i missed most of my classes it didn't matter because from round one day one i show up on campus people that i knew classmates some of my friends did not recognize me whatsoever i looked different and everybody and you'll take a minute because the weight gain in this short amount of time is unreal
0: if you get off the cortisone, do you then decrease again in weight? Correct. Yeah. Right.
1: But the issue is now you're on it. Because yeah. of the rejection, I'm on cortisone for good. It's been added to the pack for good. I cannot stop it. The best thing, the best case scenario that we've eventually agreed to and gone to is five milligrams a day. So that's a single cortisone pill. You can get it from any pharmacy. And that's sort of what at least in regards to that, that kind of became the set agreement. But the A lot of damage has already been done. The doctors projected about two years. I'll need a second transplant or I'll go on dialysis. So now you're like, well, dang, like I've already given a clock of two years. That's the time I started radio because I was like, I was just looking for distractions. I was looking for things that were fun. Expression. Looking, every, anything that I could latch on, I did. I quit dance. I quit every, I quit basketball.
0: Were you able to do any of that? Like physically?
1: Um, So here's the thing, I'm not allowed to do any combat sports. So I can't pick up like, I can't spar. But cardio and... I was given an okay. Okay. As long, once the stitches heal, by then the stitches were still, they give you like a six months to a year window. And they're like, by six months, you can start moving. By three months, you can start walking, you can start moving. By six months, you can start chugging or, you know, intensifying. After the six months mark, you should be okay. The wound should have been, you should be fine by then. But like, you can't do like ab crunches. No, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of the, the plan. And but the depression took over. So I didn't care for dance. I quit that. I quit basketball. Um, and it was just about like I would go to my classes. I was, was just hanging out with my ex-girlfriend at the time, some friends on campus, and it'd just like be bummed. Like I was being a bum in every sense of the word, and just wanted to hang out. And then I wanted to party. Like again, I was going back to what I knew. Mm. So that was the issue at the time. And then I went to this thing in Abu Dhabi where they had I forgot what it was called, but it was like this thing about supporting young ar- um, local artists and musicians by 2454. I was just like trying to find something to do, like, let's go. Went down and I remember like the recipe was there, Danny Neville was there, all these different people talking about how do we build the culture, how do we build the music scene that on 2454 was still in like early heydays, right? So people were like super excited about this new potential and they were working on a project where they're gonna connect artists together that are to work on a track. And that was, I believe from that program, the gentleman that opened for Snoop Dogg in Abu Dhabi the first time, uh, the Emirati rapper. I don't even remember, I don't think I've ever seen him since, but he kind of was the graduate of this program that they built. Anyway, um, so they all were giving talks, workshops. It was that kind of vibe, you know, people were chilling and he was talking about, and then he, was, then he got up at the time and was talking about radio and he was explaining about his show. And by then, everybody somehow, at the very least in Dubai, you've heard of his show or you've seen him at a party. Like he already had an an established name. And I don't know what got over me. I started challenging him in front of everybody. I'm like, bro, nobody listens to radios. Either your iPod, it's the CD, it's the USB, da-da-da. And at the time, I was like really proud of this like old Camry that I got. And I got like tinted and I got like what was called a bazooka subwoofer and these like mad pioneer speakers. Like, yo, it was just sheer arrogance in this like beat up car but i loved it it was like the loud thing right and again that's like just the hip-hop references right and at the time you're talking about early 2000s so you know the 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 rap scene in the south was booming so you know you had your your three six mafias and the big baggy clothes and everything was just about loud and bombastic like "Yeah, yeah bass you know so i'd roll up to campus like that yo and like it was like it's the way, you know, the back lean on your car seat, which you should never do, by the way. It's not safe, but that was the vibe. <laughs> and that's kind of how I live it. So I start challenging this guy. I'm like, yeah, but nobody listens. I'm like, I don't do that. You know, I got like, I have an SD card in my car and he just plays I have, like X thousands of music on it. And we had this back and forth. And eventually it was like, um, he's like, yo, if you don't believe me, come on the show. You can shadow me and see for yourself. And I was like, oh, you're saying this because people are here or we're doing this? <laughs> he's like, no, I'm serious. At the end of the thing, come to come through. I'll give you my number. Let's connect. And that's how I met Danny back then. And I, I called him out on it. I went in and he's like, and you know what? Here's my number. But also he gave me like two VIP tickets to Snoop Dogg concert. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's really nice about it. And... I called him up. I'm like, all right, what's the deal? How are we doing this? And it was like, back then, if I remember, it was every Saturday, the Edge with Danny Neville, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. DJ Brooklyn was there. And Mikey, um, when he used to DJ, he was DJ Empty Pockets. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mikey from Amongst Few. So that was his early days. So that was the crew, right? And I kind of stepped into this world where I'm like, this is wild. And it was tense security too. Like there's this card that Danny had and somebody had to come and let you in the building. It was this whole thing. And right down... And the other studio was um, Schooly. uh Schoolie Soulful Sessions, Radio 2, right? And we were in Radio 1. This was before they closed Radio 1. Like, it, we were, it was the thing, right? 104.1, it was like, yo, I was all in suddenly. Like, I'm like, you know, when it, if you take a kid to Disneyland and they're just like, eyes pop wide open, that was me. And these guys are DJing and do this whole thing. And I was obsessed because in high school, I had a lot of hustles, one of which was like, I started DJing at like 10th grade. And that's because I knew of Danny. He's the guy that would DJ like the high school proms for the school that could afford to bring Danny. You know, he was the guy. And <laughs> turns out we went to the same high school, and it was like this whole thing. I'm like, oh great! So like Abri and Arkham and Danny, like these guys were, you know, the charge Charger kids. So you want to be like those guys. And just so happens, there was a music store next to my house that used to make, um, they used to play weddings, but they had DJ sets and stuff. So I made a deal with them, like I'll help them computerized everything so like their inventory i created spreadsheets for them and in return i can come in and play and use the equipment and i can rent it for free so that was the deal and they taught me everything like and i experienced the trying to fit two speakers a monitor um speaker stands the dj sets that were huge at the time whether it's a new or a pioneer stuffing all that in a cab then going to a party and setting all that up with the cables and the XLRs. Like I learned everything in this space. They weren't vinyls, but at least I learned the whole thing. And, you know, you're in high school, you're getting invited to DJ private parties. And like, it was super cool. So, I, so when the radio opportunity came about, I'm like that, I know, I know this world. And now I get to be with these guys, right? So we, saw, we got into radio, things kicked off and I would just be there. I'll just watch and whenever they're not speaking when the mics are off i'd ask all kinds of questions what's that for what does this do or what does that button do and like and i'll just sit and watch these guys like run this gamut right and it was powerful and at the time twitter just came about so like they stopped taking phone calls so if you wanted to shout out anybody you got to tag them on twitter and that it was like this whole thing and that got super exciting for me because on the flip side um we had a professor that was teaching us about social media in university and talking about do you guys know what is a hashtag like i had no clue what it was this was early day twitter and it was just a super interesting universe simultaneously that same professor the semester prior and this is where i got this spark the first semester with all the depression there was a class i skipped a lot and this professor dr sarah come on sends me an email I don't know who you are. I don't even know what you look like, but you're going to fail my midterm. I'm a difficult professor. You are not going to make it. You need to come and sign those documents saying you understand. So you'll probably drop or you'll fail my class. This is the opportunity for you to not end the semester with an F. Harsh email. Booked an appointment, went to her during her office hours. And we had this argument. I'm like, but you don't know me. I still could pass. Like I'm just just being an asshole. And (laughs) she was like, I don't do multiple choice. I give written questions. My exams usually have two to three questions only. So that's an easy F for most people. And I don't teach from the book, but my material references the books, which you actually don't know which pages you need to study from because you don't even check your blackboard. And this was like a very harsh conversation. I was like, you know what? Pass me the paper. Sign it. whatever. And I threw it in her face. I'm like, whatever. And I left. It was, just, it was a heated argument. And I'm like, I was so arrogant. when I was like, I'm not even going to drop the course. I'm like, this is going to be easy. Opened the book, I looked at it. For whatever reason, it all made sense. Like it was just, it felt like common sense. I think my media experience, my hip hop experience, and like having an understanding of these pieces. And also, you know, you're talking about like hip hop and Nike. So you kind of understand to some degree, brand and marketing To some degree, even though you never got into it. And I was lucky I studied business and economics in high school. And those were my favorite classes. So it kind of just, it fell into place. I walked out with, out of that midterm with an A. Bruh, give me multiple choice, I'll probably fail it. I don't, don't make me choose. Give me open-ended, I'll write for days. And it just so happens to be like a superpower that I had at the time. So now I get cocky. The following semester, I take three classes with her. I'm like, I'm going to show you now. Not one, but three classes. Show me your best shot. So media planning and buying class. Afterwards, she's like, stick around. I want to talk to you after the class. And she hits me. And I'll never forget this. Cause I'm like, yo, that is the most backhanded compliment I ever heard. She's like, seems like you've matured between the semesters. Huh? Who says that? And like, I laughed at it. I'm like, what are you trying to say? That actually, like, clearly you're not an idiot. And, you know, we kind of had those back and forth. And I told her my story. And the one thing I remember saying was that I was like, I, and that was the first time I have vocalized it. I was like, I became aware of, I became hyper aware of my mortality which I've never had before. And she's like, let's say you die today. I'm like, oh, harsh, but cool. Go on. What have you done for yourself? And mind you, she's a very young professor. At the time, she was like 29, 30. Like this woman got PhDs and like was doing... She's brilliant. And I'm like, "Uh, I don't know what that means. She's like, what have you done for yourself? Like, what are you leaving behind? You know, with legacy, you know, and I... Thought about it for a minute. I'm like, I got nothing. Like, I don't know. She's like, maybe you want to think about that. And it started this like self-inquisition journey. I was just enjoying radio, just doing doing my thing. And I had another professor, Dr. Ahmad al uh, Egyptian guy. Awesome dude. He worked for major corporations in HR. He would come and do trainings for management and all kinds of levels. And so his program, he was very different. Evening classes, because he had a day job. And he had this... And mostly Emirati students. And he had this little squishy toy, like this little ball that if you fall asleep, or you're not paying attention, he'll throw it at you. <laughs> um, he used to host class. We had classes outside the classroom, like we'll sit outside in the green on campus. And like he was, he was super creative in his problem solving, like being to provide an unusual educational experience for students. People loved him. His classes get booked quick. So anyway, um, in one of the classes... uh, that night it rained and I remember that and like some girls were like oh my god it's raining and some guys in the back were like ah Abud now is going to go like drift in his car that he bought it. He had a new car and everyone was laughing about it and that that just so happens in that class is like who here knows what a purpose is and now that's the first time I've ever heard that phrase and everybody had guesses and stuff and I remember writing it in a notepad and um Weird guesses, but one that stood out, some guy was like, oh, start leaving your fingerprint behind. And he's like, great. So what is your fingerprint that you're leaving behind? I'm like, oh, when he said, I thought it was the smartest thing ever. I'm like, yeah, leave a fingerprint behind. And it started this whole thing. And in his case, he's like, mine is to be able to educate as many people as possible before my time goes. He's like, I love to teach more than anything else in the world. He's like, this stuff makes me happy. I'm great at it. He's like, I was a handball champion in Egypt. I played for the national team and I left that for this. You know, so I was like, okay, so then what is mine? And it kind of, today in hindsight, these converse, the stars aligned. But at the time, I did not connect any dots. It was just different experiences in, sort of in the universe, different random stars. And it, it, it stuck with me. And I was like, okay, what is it that I want to do? And I kind of went back and forth. And I realized, like, I'm starting to like this marketing thing. Like, I'm loving this thing because I would put all my, like, hip-hop knowledge into it and my music knowledge somehow, which is like coming together. So we are talking about like fashion and dance and this and that and like basketball, like all these things, right? And I was super inspired by it. But also Sarah, like just like Roberta, Dr. Sarah Kama and I became great friends, right? So now I'm like, bro, I was a teacher's pet to the high heavens. Like I was front and center, early every class. We'll hang out after class. We'd go for coffees and like I'll ask her, like it became that kind of student Um, teacher relationship and eventually i'm like that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna build an ad agency on campus (laughs) and to build a student organization because i already did i co-founded the dance crew i was like you know what hey dr kamal do you want to be part of this that she became like the um the faculty mentor for the club and i started all kinds of deals off the bat i had this girl disha brilliant brilliant indian girl she's incredibly smart I'm like you're going to be my partner <laughs> and i kind of created this like weird team where we would make all kinds of deals like we'd partner with the photography club and be like hey we got an event coming up you guys would cover it and we'll like rebrand your stuff for you so i get like design student I'm like hey you guys want a little border
0: deals here and there exactly yeah.
1: right and i started building this whole universe and at some point i remember she we were doing so well that she was like you know what you should go to the dubai links you think you're gonna like it and you know, there's the Leo Academy da, da da, and I applied for the Leo Academy and the university rejected my application because I wasn't a 3.9 or 3.8 GPA student. She vouched for me, another professor that never taught me, but she has heard of me and the work we've been doing that and it created this whole thing. They didn't let me. So what do I do? I create a sponsorship program as part of the agency to send students who have potential that the university cannot see to send them to the Dubai Lakes. And that became a big piece of what we did. So this is like the, my first, like, you know, charity type, Thing in relation, yo and we did all kinds of deals on campus we started creating events and we do all these like marketing stuff and we even started getting you know requests from businesses and the school loved it so much they put a press release about us like it became a big hit and it was a lot of fun fast forward um and sarah and i became you know great friends so this became my obsession i'm like okay dope and i my my senior year and I've never planned anything that long in advance. In the fall semester, I planned my exit event. I was like, I'm going to leave my fingerprint. It's going to be this thing. I'm going to go out with a bang like nobody else has ever done. So I got a budget for, uh, uh, the, the, the budget the university gives is like 2500 only per semester. That's nothing. So you got to get creative to use that money to make more money. And I used it for the links. <laughs> So that was the link tickets for the students. So they didn't get, so we didn't have enough left. And I went, I bought a bunch of deals and I had this idea for an event called, I called it I Heart the Arts, which was like going to be an like, the hip-hop elements that I love, extravaganza type thing, right? And because of radio, I built so many networks and contacts. So I remember I got Brooklyn to DJ, Empty Pockets came, Danny came. We built a stage that looks like a T because there was a fashion show element where like we wanted to showcase like design student talent. Liviere Isaac, back then, Mr. Lavier was not a DJ. He hasn't even started learning how to DJ yet. He had a brand that he created, which was Lavier, which he would make Shambhala bracelets and I took him on board as a client, as Dukkan. Kind of, and this is where the... Oh, so first I'm sharing the story. This is where we took him... It wasn't as the it was like as the agency. We took him on board as a client to help brand this thing. And Muhammad Abu Qumsan, who now owns an age, a branding agency called Sukun, He's actually part of the guys that designed the Dubai X Games logo. Like this guy's a designer genius. Um, he was... He, I got him on board. He kind of became our, our partner. And I, he was part of the Palestinian club. So I partnered with the Palestinian club to help with this event. So now I'm using other clubs... And their budgets to kind of figure this event out right and i helped him make some cash on the side so we did all these things and he re- i remember he created a logo like an ot rebranding exercise like and we would take on clients together like i'll build the strategy i'll find the people and he become he became the design guy right so we started this whole world and So he branded I Heart the Yard, and there was a kid in our school who turns out to be the brother of the CEO of ITP and like the family that owned it. So like, I want to talk to your brother. Like my brother doesn't see students. I'm like, I'll have a proposal ready in two months. That was in the fall. I'm planning this for spring. Right. Um, And I went and I met with the guy. He had a broken arm at the time. And he, they're Dakkawi's, by the way. There. Their last name is Dakkawi as well, which was funny. I remember he had a cast. I met him and like, I think his fiance or something were in one of the Emirates. And I walked him through. I'm like, this is what I'm building. I'm like, I need sponsorships. And he looked at it. He's like, well, I don't have money to give you. But what I could offer is media placement. I got like a two-page spread. I got an announcement before the event. I got an online announcement. Like I negotiated a whole deal with him on it. I'm like, all right, dope. Let's make it happen. We shook on it. That was the deal. He connected me with some staff in his company, and this is where I started. Now, I still don't have money for something that extravagant. So, just so happens that the links I was sitting at during one of the talks, met a gentleman next to me. He was like the head of market of Hyundai. So, I made a deal with him where they put like 95, 96,000 on, and they wanted to put the cars on campus and park them in like really distinctive spaces. The university lost their mind. So now I'm pleading and making deals with the university <laughs> to allow this to happen because they're putting that amount of money. And, and the head of the university, marketing, she was another ruthless woman, but like also brilliant in her own way. And she was like, you're undervaluing yourself. Marketing on campus to 3,000 plus students with disposable income is worth a lot more money than 95,000 and allowing three cars to park. Let this be a lesson. I'm like, oh shit, okay. <laughs> so, we they came in with the money, and then suddenly some girls like, hey, since you got fashion, uh, I I'm interning with Benefit. We could sponsor if we can get a space. And I got Benefit to sponsor, so now I had Hyundai sponsoring and Benefit build a booth. And like, they had this silly game where they give girls like makeup packages, and I got my friends who are graffiti artists to come and do a live graffiti show. I don't know if you remember them, Steffi and Bo. This married couple that used to do graffiti work together, so we had a wall built for them to do a live painting, and all the visual art students, so the designers, the photographers, anybody that wanted to showcase their art was welcome it was a whole thing and we got like superstar judges um, back back then. I think her name was Alanood, um, who was like one of the biggest fashion influencers at that time, the Saudi girl and she was famous for her blazers. Um, we got this uh, Filipino gentleman who designed dresses for for Hollywood like red carpet dresses was spectacular I can't remember his name but it was him and then a third person so anyway b- brilliant event everything alhamdulillah, went well. obviously that's when I learned I will never do an event again because that is a lot for 15 seconds of euphoria yeah. so <laughs> I'm like this is not for me but I did go out with a bang and Till this day, what I'm very grateful for in certain buildings at AUD campus, my pictures are up there from different things we've done. So I'm kind of proud of them. I'm like, I did leave my fingerprint. I said I was going to do that. So that was a big piece for me. Um, Fast forward to 2015. My kidneys were worsening, so I needed a second transplant. Wow. And it made six years. So that was great from 2010 to 2016. I survived six years, but same time, May 4th. By then, I... Was working at Leo Burnett. Um, I, can't, I, did, I got my postgrads done in the U.S. I went to Miami Ad School. I studied strategic planning and pop culture engineering. And I came back with that degree. I interned there for a little bit. Got, had a job with Leo Burnett in strategy. Things were going well. Life was good. And they're like, guess what? Da-da-da-da, we got surgery time coming up. So that's so... Oh,
0: and is this something that like, I think we have to wrap it up and we'll do a part two. For sure. But is this something that like you knew was going to happen?
1: I was ready, ready. The, what solved my depression at the time was suddenly I had this thing I'm chasing. Purpose. Strictly. And today, I understand it. Today, if you ask me what are your love languages, I'll tell you. Like, it's physical touch and time because I have a new heightened sensory awareness of time in a strange way.
0: And it's funny because it all happened with that one question. Completely. What are you leaving behind? Right.
1: Right. And I became obsessed because I'm like, oh, my time, my clock is probably faster than anybody mm. else's that I know because I'm on all these medications. This is going to happen. And the, the chapters that come later of like this thing of trying to bulletproof my body now as I age is a whole other part of it. But I'm like, all right, clicking time bomb. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to achieve as many things as I can as in soon possible. In the shortest span of time possible. And it became this race that I put myself on. So by the time the second surgery came about, I already launched the can show. That was May 2016. So I created these videos telling the guys and tutorials for the guys, uh, Toothless and Jip, that I started the show with. Here's how you upload the podcast. This is Lipson. This is how this works. This is that. And I kind of created these videos. And we already pre-recorded a bunch of episodes. I'm like, I'm going to be unavailable for a few months, but you should be good. The second surgery, I woke up out of surgery in a panic. I'm like, where's my laptop? Everybody... Like family that was there, the doctors, the nurses are like, sir, you're in the ICU. It'll mess with your heart monitors. We're not allowed electronics. I'm like, I need my laptop. I need my phone. Figure this out. That's amazing. And then not a, I get into the ward. After that, now I was allowed my laptop. We were releasing episodes every Tuesday. By then it was a Wednesday morning. And I'm like, I pulled up my laptop. First thing went on lips and connected to the internet. The episode did not go up. I'm like, oh, I knew it. Like it's just something told me these guys did not do their job. So now I'm with all these heart monitors and I'm managing... The podcast episodes. I'm managing the social media. I'm catching up with the That's guys. So crazy, and I just started running stuff from a hospital bed at the time.
0: Let's let's leave the rest for part two. Yeah, I think uh, this is a good cliffhanger actually, because I would love to know more about like that second surgery and like yeah. how that progressed, and then specifically now what you're doing with your body and bulletproofing it, which we see every day here at 25 hour hotel.
1: Yeah, sir. Appreciate um,
0: that. Stay tuned, everybody. Ot, thanks for your time so Dude, far. Thank
1: you. I'm so happy we're doing this.
0: And we're going to do the second part more elaborate, more stories. Stay tuned.